Standing up in McKinney, this is According to Callus, and today is going to be the 18th of October, episode 285. It is a Texas Tuesday, and in the spirit of that, we're going to try something a little new. We're going to utilize a book called A Republic, Not an Empire, by none other than Patrick J. Buchanan. Now, I read this book probably about 15 years ago. He wrote it in 1999. And I, again, (laughs) unpacking uh, stuff from my office, I stumbled across it. And he actually wrote this back in 1999. And I'm reviewing this just to kind of remind myself. And he's referencing the loyal men and women of the Buchanan Brigades of 92 and 96. You may recall he ran a uh, campaign for presidency, uh, kind of foreshadowing the Ron Paul experience of 2008 and 2012. Uh, The same nonsense went on, right? They made stuff up and (laughs) just did everything they could to run the guy into the ground. But this guy is... uh, an actual conservative warrior and um, stood his ground. Uh, So (laughs) uh, part one of his book is what I want to focus on just temporarily here. America reaches for global hegemony in chapter one, how empires perish. Uh, Like I said, I read this a long time ago, uh, so I'm I'm not going to review the book per se, but I'm going to use it for reference. And chapter two is courting conflict with Russia. Starts on page seven. And it starts with a couple of uh, quotes here. He who wants to defend everything defends nothing. And he who wants to be everyone's friend has no friends in the end. That's Frederick the Great. The Price of Empire is America's Soul, and the Price is Too High, by William Fulbright. So, I'm going to just read a little bit of this here. The Cold War was an exceptional time. They called forth exceptional commitments. A nation that wanted to stay out of World War II had declared by 1950 that an attack on Turkey would be treated as an attack on Tennessee, that the 30th parallel of Korea would be defended as if it was the 49th parallel of the United States. But when the Cold War ended, the Cold War coalition collapsed. The traditionalists declared that the time had come to dissolve the now unnecessary alliances and bring the boys home. Shocked at the outbreak of this isolationism, <laughs> isolationism, internationalists quickly pressed America to seize the moment and begin an era of benevolent global hegemony. Now, it may seem to you that you've heard some of this before. And maybe you heard it from Pat Buchanan back in the day. Perhaps you've heard it from Ron Paul. Perhaps you've heard it from me just echoing these two great men. The idea is that the Pentagon, the United States, had determined that the United States was going to be the sole superpower. And on page nine, 
The Washington Post noted, while the U.S. cannot be the world's policeman by assuming responsibility for righting every wrong, we will retain the preeminent responsibility for addressing selectively those wrongs which threaten not only our interests, but those of our allies or friends, which could seriously unsettle the international relations. (laughs) Yeah, the world's policeman. No, we're not going to really do that, but we are. So, uh, and then we're going to Jump ahead real quick here to page 47, the myth of American isolationism. So, now, you may recall last week I referenced the idea that little Benji had thrown out about how Tulsi Gabbard was an isolationist. Isolationist, excuse me. The idea of being an isolationist means that you don't want your nation to interact with any other nation. Then there's a non-interventional non-interventionist, excuse me, a non-interventionist believes that we shouldn't get involved in the affairs of other nations, particularly if those other nations are squabbling amongst themselves, which is how I would define the great Dr. Ron Paul, Pat Buchanan, and I guess to some extent Tulsi Gabbard, and several other luminary people. Certainly I find myself in that same position. I, I don't see the need or desire to be involved in every other little squabble that goes around and around. Okay, so I'm going to just read the first chapter here on this. Oh, well, before I do that, I'm going to give you a quote here because it's Thomas Jefferson. You know, got to pause for Thomas Jefferson. Our first and fundamental maxim should never to be entangled or never to entangle ourselves in the broils of Europe. Our second, never to suffer Europe to intermendal in cis-Atlantic affairs. So basically, we need to stay out of Europe's problems and we need to keep Europe out of our issues. Kind of funny, that, from Thomas Jefferson. Hard to see how anybody would consider him an isolationist. Okay, so here we go. The occasion was the 50th anniversary of the Japanese attack on the Pacific Fleet. A crowd gathered on the pier overlooking the hulk of the Arizona. The present of the day was magnanimous towards the former enemy. I have no rancor in my heart towards Japan, none at all, said George Bush, who fought in the Pacific War. But the president did have rancor for those who he held responsible for the date which would live in infamy. In a savage remark, Bush declared, Isolationism flew escort to the very bombers that attacked our men. Isolationists gathered together with what was known in those days at an American first rally. At precisely the moment the first Americas met early violent deaths right here in Pearl Harbor. (laughs) All right, uh, we're going to go on to the next chapter just because we have to. The president urged his countrymen to repudiate, repudiate, wow, (laughs) that's a tongue twister. Repudiate the final or the fatal delusion that had led to the disaster and its disciples. We stand here today on the site of tragedy spawned by isolationism, isolationism, and we must learn and avoid the dangers of today's isolationism and the economic accomplice protectionism at his party's convention in San Diego. Five years later, the ex-president thundered leadership means standing against the voices of of isolationism and protectionism. (laughs) 
you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, when I was a young man, uh, back in 1988, I kind of liked George Bush senior world war two pilot, one of the youngest pilots ever war hero to hear this stuff. It just didn't play in 92. It sure as heck didn't play in 96. And it's actually, in many cases, George Bush's fault that Ross Perot got involved in that race in 92. And it was George Bush's fault that he didn't work something out with Ross Perot and and address those needs, those concerns. The American first, the populism that existed back then even. And that gave us Bill Clinton. So while it's real convenient and nice to blame Ross Perot, it's George Bush Sr.'s fault. Had he done away with his internationalist mindset and focused on the fact that he was the president of these United States and put these United States as his first priority, we would have been in a much better shape. But he did not. So, on page 49, uh, Pat starts with, The idea that America was ever isolationist nation is a myth. A useful myth, to be sure, but nonetheless a malevolent myth that approaches the status of a big lie. Hmm. How did that term come into common usage? Cole explains. Now, Cole, he's going to reference, is Wayne Cole, a historian of the struggle between FDR and the America First Committee of 1940 and 1941. Okay. And he studied isolationism with the scare quotes for 50 years and came to the conclusion. So before I go on to these two quotes real quick, the idea that you sell out your own nation for other nations' benefits is a problem. That makes you a traitor. And while it's probably not polite or nice, how else can you explain that when you put the concerns of another country before your own country? You're the leader of your country and you worry more about another country than your own. You're not working for the best benefit of your people. That makes you a bad person, in my opinion. And because this show is called According to Callus and it's based largely on my opinion or my understanding of things, that's where I stand. So, uh, Mr. Wayne Cole says the very term is an obstacle to clear thinking, meaning isolationism. No president or national political party in the entire history of the United States ever advocated isolating the United States from the rest of the world. In the 18th and 19th century, the term isolationism was never used to describe the foreign policies of any presidential administration. Indeed, he goes further because now we're going to get to how this is a myth. Cole explains isolationism, again with the scare quotes, is a pejorative or was a pejorative term invented and applied in the 20th century to discredit policies that the United States had followed traditionally during the first 140 years of its independent history. The term was never accurate label for United States policies. And how does he know that the century of isolationism is a uh, joke? Well, John Adams fought an undeclared naval war with France. Thomas Jefferson doubled the size of the country by 
relieving Napoleon of Louisiana and sent ships to attack the Barbary pirates. James Madison seized West Florida from Spain, took us in a war against the British Empire, and sent an army to invade Canada. Andrew Jackson invaded Florida and packed the Spanish governor off to Havana after the Secretary of State John Quincy Adams convinced Madrid to cede the United States the derelict province. And we'll go on and on. So the idea that the United States was isolationist is a joke. It's terrible. The idea is that we're going to call somebody an isolationist that doesn't want to police the world, that doesn't want to be involved in everybody else's business. But in fact, somebody that is a non-interventionist is an entirely different animal. Somebody that doesn't seek to interfere in everybody else's business is an entirely different issue altogether. Never ever has anybody been a complete isolationist. Dr. Paul, the great Dr. Paul, is not an isolationist. I am not an isolationist. Tulsi Gabbard, not an isolationist. And, of course, Patrick Buchanan, not an isolationist. It's just a joke. A joke. In fact, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, if you haven't heard that name, you should look it up, um, would exalt even before America's splendid little war with Spain, that we have a record of conquest, colonization, and expansion unequaled by any people in the 19th century. <laughs> and now we're scared of that. We, we, we cower in fear and we hold our heads in shame. And to some extent, a lot of things we did, we should be shameful of. But this is at a time period where people were still expanding. People were still going out and taking unfulfilled land. And when you look at, quite frankly, what's left of the many parts of the world that were abandoned, right? The uh, the colonizers left or turned over their former colonies to the people that were still there. They're not nearly as well off as they previously were. On the whole, of course, there's always exceptions to the rules and I don't want to hear about it. But on the whole, those nations are not better off as a whole. So one wonders what would be gained if we were to actually treat these United States as a Republic? Well, first of all, we wouldn't need to exercise the Texit option because each state would be treated individually and would have a respect for its own borders. And the national slash federal government would actually do the things that we created it as states to do. And it would realize that it has boundaries of what it can and cannot do and it needs to stay out of certain things and it needs to exert its authority only where it was granted but in fact that is not the case we're dealing with we have the exact opposite so i i wonder could texas reassert itself as an independent republic could texas actually stand as a true Texas First Republic. Now, this is the goal, right, of Daniel Miller and the folks at the Texas Nationalist Movement, of which I'm a member of. But the reality is, is even if we were to stay in these United States and we functioned as semi-independent republics, would we be better off? Do you think that realistically, even if we weren't an independent nation, that we might be able to patrol our own border? Do you think maybe we could reorientate some of our expenses to repel the invasion from, oh, I don't know, 
the narco tribes, right? Perhaps tribe isn't the best word. Um, gangs, influences. Could, could we hold them at bay? Could we push them out? Could we deal with the fact that there's all these uh, people that are being hustled and brought in and trafficked and quite frankly, the modern slavery that's allowed to exist? Might we be able to better deal with that? As a semi-independent republic within these United States, might we do a better job of our own energy production? One wonders, would we be sacrificing ourselves on the altar of renewable energy if we were still semi-independent? I know if we were to go fully independent, that would not be a question. We would do our own thing and we would be among the top producers in the world. But right now, we're playing the game because the feds give money and they incentivize us to build windmills, which really don't pay for themselves. Hey, but somebody else has given us money. Keep in mind, they took our money first before they gave us money. So it's really not that big of a gain, but it's all part of the system, right? We're, we're just going to manipulate people and get what we want out of it. So I think all forms of energy production are a good thing. I would not turn down any form of energy production. But when you are at a situation where you are artificially incentivizing people to use a less efficient, a less reliable form of energy production, why are you doing that? It's clearly not for the objective that you've laid out. And while we're at it, why do we continue to ignore the great big border between us and Mexico that has all sorts of problems. Now, I've said this time and time again. My heart goes out to people that are truly evacuating from terrible places and want to improve their lot in life. I appreciate the fact that a certain percentage of them are a giant added bonus to these United States. But if we're going to put a number on it, if there's a million people coming every other month, I'm going to just speculate that 20% at best is a net positive for these United States. And I don't know how we handle that because nobody seems to be interested in actually talking about it. Nobody seems to be interested in solving the problem. They, they play games by shipping them to other places in the country and trying to make people look bad in this political gamesmanship. Meanwhile, in the resident in chief, uh, sleepy, creepy Joe is flushing what's left of our nation down the toilet. Meanwhile, many, many governors are just sitting there watching it happen and doing very little to prevent it or stop it. Texas has other options. Texas has the ability to deal with this on their own. It's just a question of whether or not they're willing to, whether or not they're able to put the differences aside and do the right thing. Now, I don't think you're ever going to be able to cut a deal with the uh, Francis O'Rourke people. I don't think you're ever going to be able to placate the communists, the socialists, the progressive nutcases, and bring them on board. But I would be willing to bet there's a whole lot of moderate Democrats. There's a whole lot of uh, squishy Republicans that actually would be quite happy to have somebody say, yeah, we're going to fix this problem. And this is how we're going to attempt to fix it. And if it doesn't work 100%, we'll keep tweaking it and trying stuff a little bit different until we find what works. Because we think Texas is worth defending. 
not just against the invasion from the South, but quite frankly, from the invasion from D.C., the invasion brought about by D.C. But that's going to require people that have backbones, people that are willing to think outside of the box, people that are willing to accept that sometimes you have to take the good and not see it as the enemy of the perfect. I would be perfectly content with a pink state, which is not a bright red state, if we had a certain level of independence, if we weren't kowtowing to everything coming out of D.C. I would be willing to have a certain amount of grace when dealing with Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and even Austin, if we were to assert our independence. But we're not there yet. We can't even declare ourselves semi-independent. We can't even defend our own borders. We can't even push back at the abuse and excess of uh, authority that doesn't exist from the national government. If we could just rein in the feds and tell them to go home, if we could just, I don't know, hold the line at the border until we sort things out internally here, I think we'd be in a much better, better place. A much, much, much better, better, better place. <laughs> yes, the idea that the good is seen as the enemy of the perfect is a problem for me because I don't hate Democrats. I don't hate moderates. I don't see them necessarily as the enemy. I see progressives as an enemy. I see communists as an enemy. I see socialists as an enemy. And I think that, quite frankly, a lot of times, moderates, squishes, they tend to not have our back because they hear their arguments, they hear their concerns, and there is some validity to them, but because we refuse to engage on them, before, because we refuse to acknowledge that, well, there's a point there, and maybe we should look at tweaking things or doing things a little bit differently so that we can address these issues, because we, on the right of the aisle here, don't do a good job of being willing to open up our minds to, hey, well, maybe what you're doing here isn't the best solution. Yes, it works. Yes, it's got a track record, but maybe we could tweak it a little bit. Maybe we could try something a little better. We we don't want to be open. And to be honest, there's a good reason for that. <laughs> because our leaders are always caving, always giving in, always giving up that ground, always ready to surrender on our behalf. So a lot of us on the grassroots are like, no, enough of that. No more. There are things that we agree upon across the spectrum, except for those progressive, socialist, liberal, communist, whatever you want to call them. But from the near left to the far right, we generally agree on a whole lot of things. And we could get a whole lot more stuff done if we would look for what's the greater good of the Republic of Texas? What's the greater good of the Republic of these United States? How do we make something that's good better? How do we make things less difficult, less challenging for people to be successful? How do we get government out of the way of our lives? Every solution that you bring government in only creates more problems. The fact of the matter is, is we refuse to acknowledge it because we're getting that sweet, sweet coin. That sweet, sweet coin that we stole from somebody else. Now, my libertarian friends are really good about saying taxation is theft. And they are right. Taxation is a form of theft. Now, somebody that accepts the idea that in order to live at a place or take part in the society means that if there's going to be a cost involved in it, is choosing 
to accept that. And while it may be coerced to some degree, that's a fair trade in some cases. So while we don't like the method which taxes are collected, while we don't like the method of which taxes are enforced, we acknowledge that there is some benefit of collective action. There is some benefit of community coming together to do things that can't be done by a single individual or even a single company. There is a benefit to be had. We have to be willing to think about that and talk about it and move on that action. But those are choices that are made by individuals who have their liberties respected, who have boundaries that are understood. That directly translates to the republic. If Texas is a republic, it goes both ways. If we treat these United States as part of a republic, things would only be better. But we don't. We compromise for that sweet, sweet coin. The sweet, sweet coin that they've stolen from us over decades. It's a bribe. You're being bribed with your own money. And whether the officials at the state level can't figure that out or don't want to know, or whether the feds just think that people are that stupid, it's, it's up to us to tell people that you can only compromise so much away. You can only give up so much before you have nothing left. That's the problem that the, the Republicans and the conservatives seem to forget time and time again. If you keep surrendering, you've got nothing left to give. And yes, I am rehashing things that I've said before. You know why? Because it needs to be said over and over again. Because people constantly forget. We get new listeners and they need to hear it for the first time. We got some of the old listeners that seem to forget. And then we got people that just listen to 30 seconds. And that challenges my preconceptions. I don't want to listen any further. Well, I'm here to tell you, you have to be willing to address your preconception of what things are and look at possible and probable solutions to where we're at. And sometimes that means just because you have an idea doesn't mean it's the best idea. You have to be willing to have an open conversation. How do we move forward? And that's something that a lot of people struggle with, myself included. Hello, pot, meat, kettle. Yes. And with that, we're going to circle back to the main idea. This is a Texas Tuesday. Texas is a republic, should act like a republic, and needs to remind the feds that we are a republic. And we are going to assert... And preserve our Republican form of government. And that's a little r Republican, not big r political party Republican. And while that's all well and good, that means that we the people are going to be represented down in Austin as well as in D.C. To that end, we have people that we elect every couple of years to go do that job for us. And if they do a good job, we send them back. Unfortunately, when they do a bad job, we keep sending them back. That's the problem we have. That's the problem that's very fixable. But they keep bribing us with our own money. And people don't seem to understand that. So we're going to take the time and we're going to educate the people and let them know that when they're giving you money, it's because they took your money first. When they give some little thing here, it's because they took something else first. They don't produce anything. They're a parasite. How's that for a Texas Tuesday? And remember, the way you help me 
help you, help us, help the Republic, is you subscribe, you like, you share, you comment, you put this podcast out there, you tell your friends, we continue to grow the audience, we're well above 30k listens now, the next goal is 50k, question is, can we hit 50k before December, I don't know, but let's find out, 50k is the goal by December 1st, help me out here, share, subscribe, like, comment, Let's get past this algorithm nonsense and let's make a difference in Collin County, McKinney, Texas. And with that, this was According to Callus. This is and was episode 285. And I will see you on the other side.